Church, if you could please open up to the book of Psalm 69, if you're not there already. Psalm 69, we'll read that in just a moment. As you're turning there, I want to talk to you briefly about the power of our circumstances. It's interesting, isn't it, how our circumstances can affect our mood. And our mood, in turn, can affect our zeal or our motivation. When I was younger, I had this distinct memory of mom and dad telling me we had a whole bunch of trees that dropped gumballs, and we had a horse pasture. And so it wasn't good for these gumballs to be everywhere, so someone had to get out and rake them all up. And so, of course, being a strapping young lad, that task fell to me. So I would get this rake and have to go out there and rake these gumballs, and I'm looking out at all the gumballs, and I'm thinking, I'm going to be out here for a year. I am not going to get all these up. And I go out, and I, I do it as quickly as I can. I'm ready to be done, and I get it all done, and I go and tell Dad, Dad, I'm done raking up the gumballs. It took forever. I'm done raking up the gumballs. And he walked out, and he said, well, there's still gumballs out here. I said, well, I got the ones I could. And there were some that had kind of sank into the mud a little bit, and the mud solidified. So to get those out, you can't just rake. You can't just rake hard. You have to, like, kind of kick those to get them out. And they're just everywhere. He says, you got to do it again. I was in such a bad mood. Now, this is partly my doing. But the point is, I was in such a bad mood, all I just felt like doing was just dropping the rake and laying in the grass and just lying there. I don't even want to do anything fun anymore. I just don't want to do this. It's funny how our circumstances can affect our mood, and that can zap our zeal and motivation, or it can fuel it when we're in a good mood. We're ready to enjoy life. We want to be around people and family. We, we are more likely to shrug our frustrations off. But then when we're in a bad mood, just the smallest thing can set us off. Just the smallest frustration can really send us over the edge. We can't really enjoy the moment, even if we're having a happy moment. It's a beautiful day, family's over, but I'm just in a bad mood. I just don't want to talk. I don't want to spend time laughing. Many of us in these moments disconnect. And a prime example of this is coming to church. We come into the worship service. I've been here, maybe you can relate. And you come in and you're thinking, I'm just... Things are just too hard right now. I really just can't sing. I don't want to sing right now. I don't want to make a joyful noise to the Lord. Maybe you can relate. Here's our main idea this morning. Because we serve a saving God, suffering and injustice are opportunities for worship in prayer and song not obstacles. Because we serve a saving God, our suffering and injustice are not obstacles to worship. They are opportunities for us to worship. And that's what we're going to see this morning. We're in Psalm 69 the past couple of years during Thanksgiving. I don't know if you've noticed the pattern, but I select a different psalm that speaks of Thanksgiving. We've looked at a couple of different psalms already, 25 and 50, I believe. And this week, we're going to look at Psalm 69. Now, there's a lot of different types of psalms in the Bible. And sometimes these categories of psalms kind of overlap like a Venn diagram, where maybe more than one category will apply to a psalm. And that's the case here with Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is a messianic psalm. That's going to be very clear in a moment as you read some very familiar phrases. 
talking about the Messiah. Psalm 69 is a psalm of lament. It chronicles suffering and it asks for deliverance. You read it and you can feel the weightiness of the matter. Psalm 69 is what's called an imprecatory psalm. I am imprecatory psalm. It's a psalm asking God to curse his enemies. Psalm 69 is a psalm of thanksgiving. It addresses God, it describes the situation, it asks for deliverance, and then it offers a promise of praise. This psalm is also the third most quoted psalm in the New Testament, right behind Psalm 22 and Psalm 110. Finally, this psalm this morning will be helpful for us to know it is both a song and a prayer of David. So let's listen to this song, this prayer, this morning together. I'm going to invite everyone to stand together for the reading of God's holy word, a physical posture, because this is indeed the holy word of God for us. Psalm 69, I'll start in verse 1. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore? Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from the sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul, redeem me, ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. 
Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. And people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it. And those who love his name shall dwell in it. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you who have inspired every word that we just read, would you now speak them powerfully deep into our hearts? Transform us by the renewing of our mind into the image of Jesus Christ, we pray in his wonderful name. Amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. As I stated a moment ago, this psalm is both a song and a prayer. All of the psalms are songs. This is heaven's songbook is what it's been called. But not all of them have such clear prayers like this one. You might argue that they are all prayers, but not all of them are quite so clear. This morning, I want to break this prayer down into three elements that will serve as kind of some guideposts for us this morning. We're going to see the prayer's source, the prayer's substance, and the prayer's spirit. That is, where is this prayer coming from? What's the source? What is the occasion for the prayer? What's being requested? What's the substance of the prayer? What is he asking? And finally, what is the spirit of the prayer? What is the attitude that drives this prayer from David? So first, let's look together at the prayer's source. Why is David praying here. Verse 1 gives us a clue. He begins, save me, O God. Now that's the what. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. That's the substance. But it also implies a why. Why would David pray, save me, O God? It's simple. He needs saving. There's a circumstance that he's found himself in. Well, what does he need saving from? We see two sources here. Suffering and injustice. Here's how David describes his suffering. Look with me, starting in verse 1. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Skip forward to verse 19, and we see this pick back up. 
You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Remember that the Psalms are books of poetry. The author does not intend for us to interpret some of these phrases literally. David is not literally drowning in water as he writes this. David is revealing to us his deepest emotions. It's like he's drowning in water, but it's not, it's not water. It's this mud that is loose enough where he sinks into it, but then strong and thick enough where he can't force himself above it by swimming. If you've ever been hunting and you've got these rubber boots on and you're walking through and you hit certain patches of mud and you hear this sound, and you know when I go to pull my foot up, the whole thing is coming out of the boot. The boot is stuck. That's kind of similar to what's going on here, but instead of a little thick patch of mud, it is so deep that it's up to his neck and he can't force himself up to get air. He feels like his circumstances are surrounding him and I just can't get my neck up enough to breathe. And the moment he gets up just enough to take a breath, he's right back down under again. He is suffering. He can't tread He's struggling for his life. Now in Psalm 40, verses 1 and 2, David prays to the Lord. He waits patiently. And then listen to what verse 2 says. This is in Psalm 40. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. So in Psalm 40... David, on one occasion, prays, he waits, God answers him and delivers him from his trial, and he describes it as being lifted out of the miry bog like we're reading about here. And God sets him on the solid rock, and now David can breathe. He's not sinking anymore. He's on a rock. He has a stable foundation to stand upon. David felt comfort and relief because God answered But now in Psalm 69, David cries and cries to the Lord, so much so that he's parched and weary and he's about to pass out because God is not answering. In verses 19 through 21, his heart is broken. He's in despair. He looks for pity and comfort from anyone. He just wants someone to say, it's going to be okay, David. But instead, everyone around him is taking advantage of his circumstances. His fellow Israelites, instead of helping him, are making it worse. And David describes it as figurative poison and sour wine. By the way, this is also used of Christ in the Gospels when he's on the cross and is given the sour wine. David is suffering. Have you ever felt like this? Have you ever felt like God isn't listening to your prayers? Maybe you're on a hot streak of God not answering you. Like God isn't hearing you. Like no one understands and you really can't find comfort anywhere. You just want someone to say it's going to be okay or to give you comfort and it's not coming. 
Have you ever prayed and prayed and not had relief, not been lifted out of the mire and set upon the rock, but just left in the mud to struggle? David, the man after God's own heart, felt this way. David, the man after God's own heart, had moments of despair and brokenness just like us. Now why? Why did David feel this way? Because of injustice and oppression. Pick back up with me now in verse 4. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore? So many hate him without cause. Have you ever felt this way? That person just does not have a good reason for not liking me. Why am I being treated like this? People attacked him with lies. Has that ever happened to you? He's falsely accused, and he's expected to pay for a crime he didn't commit. Does that sound familiar? In all these things, David never loses sight of one crucial truth. And we will come back to this again. Verse 5. He is not perfect. Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs that I have done are not hidden from you. Listen very carefully. There is no such thing as an innocent sufferer. It doesn't exist. There is no such thing as an innocent sufferer. Now let me explain. When we suffer injustice against us, is it unjust? Yes. By definition, injustice Injustice. It is unjust. It's not right relative to that situation. I want you to imagine suffering as being in layers. If someone steals from me, that's injustice. Between me and this person, I do not deserve to have what belongs to me stolen. That is not right. However, as it relates to my sinfulness, my suffering is generally deserved because suffering only exists as a result of sin, which I daily exercise. So at any one moment, I can call suffering both unjust and yet deserved at the same time, because suffering is the inevitable result of living in a fallen world of which I am a chief contributor. It is a hard pill to swallow to admit I actually deserve suffering because I sin regularly, knowingly. I sin. And David is well aware both of the injustice in his life and the fact that he himself is a sinner. While David dwells on the injustice in his life and the sin of others against him, he cannot help escape his sinfulness before God. Maybe he hasn't done what he's being falsely accused of. Maybe he hasn't stolen and he's being, he's being asked to repay and he hasn't really stolen. Maybe that's true. But he has done wrong. Charles Spurgeon once said this, Brother, if any man thinks ill of you, 
Do not be angry with him, for you are far worse than he thinks you to be. If he charges you falsely on some point, be satisfied. For if he knew you better, he might change the accusation and you would be no gainer by the correction. If you have your moral portrait painted and it is ugly, be satisfied. For it only needs a few blacker touches and it would still be nearer the truth. We face false accusations like David all the time. And what Charles Spurgeon is saying here is, good, it's a good thing they don't know you any better or it would have been worse. And I think David realizes this. There is no such thing as an innocent sufferer because none of us are innocent. There was only ever one innocent sufferer. And this innocent sufferer is described starting here in verse 7. It is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I've become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's son. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. He bore reproach and abuse for following God. His brothers, including most of his fellow Israelites, rejected him. He was criticized for practicing godliness as though he was a criminal. Who is this innocent sufferer? It's Jesus Christ. In John chapter 2, Jesus has flipped over the money changing tables in the temple and listen to verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Does that sound familiar? Jesus is flipping the money changing tables, and his disciples, who know the scriptures, they sit back and they say, Guys, this is Psalm 69. Look, it says, Zeal for your house will consume me. Is this the Messiah? Romans 15.3, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Does that sound familiar? It's Psalm 69. These are talking about Christ. He suffered for us, the innocent, for the guilty. And he did so, so that all who repent and trust him in faith might receive his innocent verdict on that final day of judgment. But his suffering for us is more than forgiveness for sin and erasure of our guilt and condemnation. Make no mistake, it's not less than that, but it is more. It is also an example for us. Jesus' suffering teaches us how we are to suffer during injustice. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 through 24 Speak well of this example. I'm going to read it for us. 1 Peter 2, 19 through 24. says this. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been 
called. Now, let me re-say that. When you do good and suffer and endure, you've been called to do that. Because, verse 21, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So we are to endure suffering because Jesus endured suffering. And we are to endure it the way that he endured it. Whenever we are spoken ill of, we don't speak ill back. When we are threatened, or when we suffer, we don't threaten back. Rather, we are told to entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. Jesus died for us so that we might live like him. He doesn't just want us to go to heaven. He wants us to be the image of God. Now that will be in heaven one day, forever. But he wants that to begin happening now. That's what it means to follow Jesus. I've committed to living like Jesus. I want to look like Jesus. Well, Jesus suffered unjustly, and he endured. We can see a glimpse of this in David, going back to Psalm 69. In the midst of his descriptions, what is he worried about? He's worried about being a hindrance to others. Look at verse 6. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. He doesn't want God's people to be shamed because of his actions. And he doesn't want to be a hindrance to those who are seeking God. That's what he's worried about here. What if the church lived like this? What if we lived like this? What if our primary concerns were making sure that when we suffer, even unjustly, that God's name is not dishonored among us in the way that we live and react to one another? What if that was our concern? What if we cared about reflecting poorly on others who bear the name of Christ by what we say or do or don't say or do? What if we care that we call ourselves Christian and that the world sees how we act and it might reflect poorly on other Christians, much less our wonderful Savior? What if we cared about reflecting poorly on God Almighty so that those who do not yet know Him might not have their image of Him polluted by us, His very own people? This is what David cared about. He said, zeal for your house has consumed me. Even though he was reviled and falsely accused, David remained humble. And in his humility, he prayed 
Suffering and injustice were the source of his prayer. That's number one. Number two, we see the prayer's substance. The prayer's substance. Starting in verse 13, we see David's humble response. And it's twofold. First, he prays for rescue. There's two primary categories. Number one is rescue. Look at verse 13. As for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from the sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. Answer according to your abundant mercy. Turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. In these six verses, we have a burst of requests. Listen to these. Deliver me, he says twice actually. Answer me. Hide not your face. Draw near. Redeem me. Remembering the two categories we just looked at, suffering and injustice, David prays for God to rescue him from his suffering and his injustice. Look at verse 14. It says, deliver me, suffering, from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered, injustice, from my enemies. Enduring unjust suffering does not mean that we don't pray against it. Enduring unjust suffering does not mean we just sit back and do nothing. We should pray as we endure. We should pray like David for God's presence in our suffering and injustice. Here is the Garrett Modern English translation of what David is saying here. I don't want to suffer anymore. I pray that all the time. I don't, I'm, I'm, I don't want to suffer anymore. I'm drowning. Please don't ignore my suffering anymore. Don't turn your face away from me anymore. How much is too much? Answer me quickly. Don't wait to answer. Answer now. Save me. This is what David is praying. As we mature in the faith, we can be tempted to pray more and more like this as we mature. God, I know I'm suffering. I know there's injustice. But let your will be done here. To pray for God's will over your own personal desires is a sign of growing maturity. It's similar to Jesus' prayer, Remove this cup from me, Father, but not my will, but yours be done. Okay, that is a sign of maturing in our prayer life and in our faith. However, this should not be the only way we ever pray. And it's very easy for our prayers to kind of be reduced to this simplistic, I'm just going to pray for God's will every time. Because His will is going to be done regardless. Why would I pray for anything different? He's only going to do what He has purposed to do. But that's not what we see here. 
This should not be the only way that we ever pray. We should pray prayers that are in alignment with the character of God, regardless of how he may choose to answer them. I don't know if he's going to deliver me from my suffering today, but you know what I'm going to pray for? God, deliver me from my suffering today. You're a deliverer. I'm praying according to your character. Deliver me. God, I'm asking for healing today. In these prayers, the phrase, if it's your will, is implied. That's not to say we should never use that line. It's absolutely good to say that, especially when you feel tempted to presume omniscience in a situation. God, I know what's best here. This is it. Do it. In that moment, you probably need to remember, Lord, let your will be done. But we also need to pray, God, act according to who you are. Answer me now. Deliver me and draw me to you. We should make it a habit of asking God to act in accordance with his character. He loves it when you do that. He loves it. Kind of like I love it whenever Kristen comes up to me and is like, Hey, Dad, I can't open this. Can you help me? I'm like, Yes, I can. <laughs> and I get it off, and she's like, Wow, Dad, you're strong. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> Walk away like, Oh, no. It makes me feel good when my children know I'll go to Dad because he can handle this. It makes God delight to hear his children say, Would you deliver me, deliverer? Would you sustain me, sustainer? He loves that. We ought to pray that way. It is the ultimate act of faith and dependence on the part of the prayer to pray that way because it shows you really believe that that's what God is like and you're trusting him to do it. So first, David prayed for rescue. Second, he prayed for punishment. So that's rescue from his situation, take me out of the situation, but then also praying over that situation, and he wants justice to be served, punishment. Not only did David want to be removed and relieved, he wants justice to be served on those who do evil. Just like before, there's a cluster of requests here. Verses 22 through 28, there's so many of these requests, I'm just going to read the request and we'll cover most of these verses here. Follow along with me from 22 to 28. Let their own table before them become a snare. Let their eyes be darkened, make their loins tremble. Pour out your indignation. Let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Add to them punishment upon punishment. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. It isn't enough to simply be relieved from suffering. There is something deep within us that yearns for justice. This is a good thing. This is actually proof. You know, a lot of the world, I want proof that God exists. Now, what they typically want is not really proof, not generally. They want something specific. I want a specific answer. This isn't a specific answer like they're wanting, but this is proof. How is it that we all have this deep yearning for justice? 
how is it that we all have this inner sense, even if it varies, of right and wrong? How is it that even if we disagree on what it is, we all know there's a such thing as evil? C.S. Lewis put it well. You cannot call a line crooked unless you have a line that you can call straight. I can't know a board is warped sometimes until I hold it up next to something that's flat and I see that curvature. We know that there's a such thing as evil. We know that justice must be served because there is a good God who is put within us to know justice will be served. And that's what we see in David here. He's yearning for this justice. So this kind of prayer is good in that it reflects God's holy, just nature. He must punish evil in order to be a good God. He must punish evil in order to be a good judge. But because we are sinful people, we have to affirm a terrifying truth. All of these acts of justice are just as deserved by us as they are by our oppressor. Just as much as we pray, God, exact justice on that evildoer. What's the, you got one finger pointing forward, you got three pointing right back. You are also the evildoer. But if you were in Christ, you didn't receive wrath, did you? You will not. What did you receive instead? Mercy. Something you don't deserve. This is why the humble attitude of David in verse 5 that I said we'd come back to is so important. David is praying these things over his oppressors, but he knows he isn't innocent either. Fellow Christian, consider yourself. God has done something spectacular for us. Even though we deserve wrath, we have mercy. When our enemies revile, accuse, and oppress us, it is good to desire for justice to be served. But we need to make sure that we would really rather them receive mercy. We don't want to have this bitter, vengeful spirit that doesn't really want justice. I just want revenge. Listen to Ezekiel 18, 23. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. God would rather the evildoer turn and live than suffer his wrath. This is the heart of the Lord, and it ought to be the heart of every single Christian. Because by definition, a Christian is simply a sinner who has received undeserved mercy. That's all we are. But in the same breath, I'm going to keep reading Ezekiel 18, picking back up now in verse 24. But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered. For the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed, for them he shall die. 
And this is David's point in his prayer. These aren't just any evildoers. These evildoers are fellow Israelites. He wants them to be blotted out of the book of life. They are those who claim, I am one of those who are in the book. And David is saying, in essence, surely not. Surely not that person. Look at what's happening here. He knows that something does not quite line up. These are the people of God acting this way, repeatedly, unrepentantly, unashamedly. And they think that they know God, but they prove that they don't because they look just like everyone else. Doing the same abominations that they do. And they think that they will escape the wrath of God. God's people look like God's people. Not perfectly, but obviously. Those who are not God's people do not. It is biblical to speak this way. To desire a separation between those who know God and those who don't. What do you think heaven and hell are? It is separation. But now it's not this temporary separation. It's fixed. It's permanent. You didn't cross over here. You will never cross over here. That's all it is. It is biblical to recognize there is a difference between God's people and not God's people. We cannot forget, however, that it is also biblical to desire mercy for the enemies of God first and only afterwards justice. So we've seen why David prayed. We've seen what he prayed. Now, number three, the prayer's spirit. The prayer's spirit, verses 29 through 36. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. And people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it. And those who love his name shall dwell in it. David's prayer is an expression of worship to God. In the midst of David's unjust suffering and misery, where he cries out repeatedly to be delivered and for justice to be served, in the midst of this, David is moved by a spirit of worship. He wants to worship in the midst of unimaginable pain. Now remember, Part of David's prayer is for God to finally answer. So this implies that he's praying, no answer. Praying, no answer. Praying, no answer. And yet, what is David's response? God is worthy of praise. Regardless of the no answer, God is worthy of praise. David praises God even when he does not answer. Look at verse 33. 
The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. How can David pray that when God is not hearing his need? How can he do that? Even though God is not answering, David has not forgotten who God is or what he does. He is a God who hears the needy. We often think of Thanksgiving as a time to give thanks for all the good things we have. As one author put it recently, I read, family, faith, and football. Even if I have nothing else, I still have this, and that's why I'm thankful. Even though I don't have anything, I still have this, and that's why I'm thankful. Yet here is David praying and praising God even when he feels like he's drowning due to his suffering and injustice in his life. There is only one reason that David can do this. He truly knows God. That man knows God. He will sing when everything is well, and he'll sing when it isn't well. Because in either case, God is still good, and God is still worthy of praise. Do you know what happens when God's people choose to praise and honor and lift up and exalt God to praise Him regardless of their circumstances? God is even more magnified in that moment than He would have been if He's being praised for everything that He does. This is the essence of the book of Job. Satan goes to God and God says, look at all the people. Is there anybody quite like Job? And Satan says, he's only praising you because you give him all this stuff. So God says, okay, take these things away. Don't do this, but take all these things away. Let's see what happens. And you know what Job does? God gives and God gives away. Takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God is more magnified when we can praise Him not because of our circumstances, but just because of who God is. But then, we see in verse 32, those who know God are built up, and they're encouraged, and they're revived. When the humble see it, they'll be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. When there is someone in the congregation that I know is struggling with something, and I see them singing praises to God and belting it out, I praise God for that. More so than normal. Of course, those of us who have been blessed, of course we're going to praise. But that person is suffering. And I know it. And we all know it. And look at what they're doing. They're praising God. When the humble see it, they are glad. They're not lifted up because David is such a good animal sacrificer. In verse 32, this pleases the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. The humble don't look at him and say, look at how well he prepared the sacrifice. He must really love the Lord. That's not what they say. They say, look, he's thanking God even when everyone is turned against him. He praises God and magnifies God despite his circumstances. Suffering and injustice are not obstacles to worship. They are opportunities. When you are suffering and you come in here to sing praises among God's people, you do not have an obstacle to worship. You have an opportunity 
to exalt God more highly, to encourage the brothers and sisters around you that I will praise despite my circumstances, and even to speak to the non-believer who is present, who may know of your suffering, and he sees you praise God regardless, that says there is a God, and that person knows him. It is a testimony. Suffering and injustice are not obstacles to worship. They're opportunities. Opportunities to show that God isn't only awesome when things go our way. He's awesome and worthy of praise simply because of who He is. So how about you this morning? Do you find that you can really only praise God when life is sunshine and roses? Do you find that you really can't praise God when things are not going the way that you hoped they would? How well do you truly know our God? Church, may we follow the example of the only innocent sufferer, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. May we, like David, pray and praise God at all times, even in the midst of hardship and suffering. May our thanksgiving be based not on our circumstances, but on one simple fact. We know God, and He knows us. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that even in the midst of whatever circumstances we are going through, trials and suffering and injustice, even by those who claim to be our brothers and sisters, Lord God, you are still the God of our salvation. You are still our deliverer and our sustainer, our rescuer, our help in times of need, the one who pleads our case for us. So Lord God, teach us to praise you, especially when we feel like we can't. Because you are still God, you are still on the throne, So we will wait for you and praise you while we wait. Thank you for sending the Lord Jesus Christ, the only innocent sufferer, to die for us guilty sufferers so that one day we might be free from sin, that we will be forgiven and on that day of judgment we might enter into eternity with you, finally free from suffering and sorrow and trials enjoying your presence forever. We look forward to that day, Lord. Sustain us until then. In Jesus' name, amen.